This is the kind of story that begins in a forest. On the traditional lands of the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Suquamish, and Coast Salish people, past and present. It's a story about Seattle's urban forest and the humans that live within it. It's told with gratitude. To honor the trees who care for us. And those who care for this land. To learn or to remember the medicines that have been a part of this place since time immemorial. We start in the year 2070, imagining what our city might look like if we planted the right seeds today. We follow the story of the Chief Seattle Club as they turn concrete into a medicine garden at Eagle Village. And we end each episode with you and me and how we might work together so that humans and trees in our community can grow old. This is Growing Old. From Seattle, Washington. In this episode, you'll continue to hear from members of the Growing Old team. Colleen Echohawk. Liliana Ayala. Tamara Power Drudis. Katie Mosauer. Jace E. Cage. Felicia Villaud. Lacey Warrior. Ian Williams. Zoe Echoak-Kayashi. Thanks for being part of the Growing Old Project. And a special thank you to our public radio listeners at KBCS in Bellevue, KMRE in Whatcom County, KVSC out of Minnesota, and KFAI in Minneapolis and St. Paul. This is the last episode in our season, but not the end of our project. We invite you to join us in August for a virtual concert with musical guests and storytellers from season one of Growing Old and the release of our soundtrack, And keep an eye out later this summer for the release of the very first Growing Old Project zine. Learn more at growingoldproject.com. Over the course of the past seven episodes, we've traveled together through some of Seattle's most extraordinary green spaces. Now, in the final episode of our season, we travel to exactly where we are, but 50 years in the future. And we'd like to hear from you. What's your vision for Seattle in the year 2070? What do you see when you imagine walking down the street in 50 years? Record your vision on your phone or whatever device you have handy and share it with us at growingoldproject.com. We'll continue gathering visions to share when we return to you in season two. In today's Seattle, it's easy to feel as fragmented as the urban forest we live in. Yet in spite of our fractures, when we explore visions for what Seattle might look like in the year 2070, those lines seem to disappear. In the Seattle of 2070, we can be contiguous. I think I didn't learn what that word meant until I was working at Nature Consortium. And I was like, contiguous. That looks like a typo. (laughs) And then I looked it up. I was like, oh, no, that's a word. Okay. (laughs) Liliana's not alone. We could make a blooper reel just of the word contiguous from our first season. My favorite being the Covidian slip recorded in Colleen's office at the Chief Seattle Club, surrounded by stacks of face masks, gloves, and smudge sprays. In 50 years, will our city be carbon neutral? Will our forest be contagious? Continuous, God. (laughs) (laughs) Might be nice if they were contagious. Continuous. I think it is important to note that contiguous is different from continuous in the sense that there's breaks in, in that forest. It isn't one giant connected swath. 
And it's important to note that because that is a huge resource in an urban space. A contiguous forest is one which stands united. Their connected roots and resulting ecosystem act as a sponge, soaking up runoff and pollutants. Wildlife move uninhibited through their breeding lands, finding shelter and supporting future generations of their species. The biodiverse forest mitigates risks to preserve the health of all who live there. And as the city was colonized and settled and populated, humans slowly encroached and cut into that forest in different ways. A fragmented forest, such as what you'll find in most of Seattle today, is scattered and disconnected. It exists wherever we've built blockades to separate humans from the natural world. Splitting a forest into first two parts, then three, then thousands of disconnected sections. Cut off from the support of the rest of their network, these tiny patches of green stand alone as they battle pollution, stormwater runoff, human use, and climate change. Blockades can take a lot of shapes, like a fence around a yard, an 18-foot wall of blackberry, a road or a freeway, a lawn, or a building like the ones I live and work in. When we lay down infrastructure, we reduce our forest's connectivity and we increase the risk to each tiny patch of green and to ourselves. I always likened it to colonization in different ways. So we have this native forest and at some point, People started traveling here and bringing with them plants that reminded them of their home country. And so they're like, oh, English ivy, so beautiful. And then these plants like escaped the pots and went rampant in the forest and then started taking over. It's almost visceral. I remember being in various forests and you're pulling these like hairy ivy vines off of a tree and then you hear the creak of the ivy kind of release the tension from wrapping around the tree. Fragmenting Seattle's forest happened incrementally and reuniting it will likely only happen incrementally as well. Yet, restoring a contiguous forest across our city's fences, roads, and buildings would provide expansive benefits to those alive today and the coming generations. And who knows, we could just make urban reforestation contagious. As Seattle progressed through the phases of reopening, Chief Seattle Club's Eagle Village was able to open their doors again to visitors. The last time I had been there, prior to the pandemic, the concrete yard was host to picnic tables, but no residents were present on the open grounds. On this visit, though, I was greeted by large wooden raised beds, well-tended foods and medicines growing, and a consistent cluster of residents hanging out in the new green space. My name's Donaldo Lyons, and I am the site manager for Eagle Village, the bridge shelter for Chief Seattle Club, and we are currently here in the community room at Eagle Village. Donaldo is part of the team that makes Eagle Village possible, continuing to serve the community through the pandemic. Unfortunately, I would say like 70% of the members did have some type of employment, but once COVID hit, everybody lost employment. People were running low with their food and they were starting to panic. So we were able to provide them with food boxes and we've had donations for a rainy day type thing. It really came in handy because we were able to make meals for people, whether it was something so simple as soup. Today, Patricia, she was like, I feel like making fry bread. So she ended up making like 50 some fry breads and she was very grateful to do it. 
And as simple as making fry bread, it really touched a lot of people today. The days before that, we've randomly done things, you know, chili dogs, just so simple, just so we know that they eat. Checking on people, hey, how are you, you know, going, putting mask on, putting gloves on, you know, going door to door, how are you doing, how's your mental health, how are you physically, mentally, do you got food, are you okay, asking those questions, and that really just bring our little community here together. They all started really supporting each other. Donalda says that, in spite of the situation, many of the members at Eagle Village have used the time to start looking for work, find their own place, and achieve goals that have been on the back burner for years. So in a bad time, there was a lot of good that came out, that has come out here in Eagle Village. Some of that good, Donalda attributes to the member-driven effort to establish a medicine garden there at Eagle Village, an effort that began before the pandemic, but refused to be put off until after. The thing about this was in February, they're asking about it. When we can start the medicine garden? Are we still going to do the medicine garden? Is the medicine garden still going to happen? February, they're asking about it. March, people are asking about it. April, and I'm just like, you know, we're in the middle of the coronavirus right now. I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, not right now. Once we get over this coronavirus and things get back to the new normal, we will definitely start that up. And then here comes Erica on her white horse saving us. Erica and the Na'a Elihi Fund donated two raised beds, food for the members, as well as soil and plants to get the members started. Last week, she came by, dropped off two beds. They actually were in a U-Haul, and it had all of these plants in there, in pots, and some soil. We had Ricky, Ron, Mauro, Thomas just get out there, and they started ricking up where the picnic tables are. Mauro started picking up the cigarettes, cleaning it up out there, making it look nice. And then they tell me, oh, we need a pick. And I'm like, okay, we'll get a pick. And before I knew it, I, we come back and they had one bed already planted. They had enough soil. They had plants already in there. Where once there had been only concrete, now there grows a medicine garden in the middle of Soto. It's really been a positive experience through the whole coronavirus, obviously, with everybody here because they all come out, they're all working together. So they're the ones who literally mapped out how they want in there. Like, is that fine? I was like, that's up to you guys. You guys are a group here. You guys are here as community. You guys decide how you would like to set this up. And so they asked around those who were there. There was quite a bit of people out there. And they said everybody gave their opinion on it and they laid it out. No, so it's been very exciting for them and for the members here and keeping their mind off of things occupied and watching it grow. Rather than being prescriptive, Donalda and the Eagle Village team left it up to members to decide what they wanted to see growing there and how they wanted to be involved in the medicine garden. As a result, in a matter of weeks, the garden has become an integral fabric in the Eagle Village community. Something as a medicine garden really has brain medicine and has really cheered up the members here and has really given them something to be real excited about, you know, bring them great joy. And one of the guys says, I'm not going to be living here when this stuff's ready to eat, but I'm coming back to get mine. He's like, I'm definitely coming back, making me a sandwich with that lettuce because I planted you. He was talking to the lettuce. It's just those little things just makes them so happy. And it makes me happy that we're really able to help them in whatever they were worried about or dealing with prior to that moment. In that very moment, they were happy and they had joy and they were able to express that and you've seen that joy because some of them they were bothered with stuff but just seeing them out there getting down on their knees and helping out planning stuff this elder man came out here told us we were doing it wrong and told them they needed to dig deeper and he 
told one of the guys move out of the way and he got down and dug it told him how it needed to be dug in a different way he educated us on the roots for a minute and then did it and he just got up like literally dusted his knees clapped his hands and went to his room i was like oh classic classic grandpa chewed us all out in the yard as donations for the medicine garden continue to arrive eagle village residents have taken charge to create a welcoming environment for the native community it's bringing a little bit life because then it also brings the members out to work together and somebody donated some really nice outdoor patio chairs out there and they really changed that little area. Everybody has been very excited to be a part of it. Those people who just stay in their room and mind their business, so to speak, and come and go. I've seen them over there talking to people. A lot of them realize that the Medicine Garden is something big, especially for Chief Seattle, it's something new. The residents at Eco Village aren't just part of the Medicine Garden. They're leading the way and growing foods that will provide for future residents, even after they've moved on to permanent housing. It's brought a sense of shared purpose and further strengthened what was already a connected community. The other night I came in and it was probably about nine o'clock at night and everybody was sitting out there, those chairs were taken. They're really enjoying it out there. Literally, they were sitting around those plant beds. In the morning, they'll be sitting out there drinking their coffee, just hanging out. The medicine garden, the two plant beds have brought a lot of literally good medicine here, has made a lot of people feel good. The good thing about it is like everybody here is community. And so the medicine garden is just one more thing added into it. I can't say enough good things about what it's done for some of the members here. Some people who have really struggled, especially during this time, to be just sitting out there, it's good to see them out there and enjoying the sun, enjoying the people, the members that are out there, enjoying just being outside. And it's just because they were curious about what is the medicine garden. It's so cool when you really think about it, you're like in the middle of Seattle, there's nothing but concrete, roads, traffic, noise, all of that. And then all of it here we have in our community over here is these two plant beds. Just those two little plant beds have done a lot for, for the members here. Hearing from Donalda about how the act of planting a medicine garden had itself been medicine for the members of Eagle Village reminded me of something Valerie Seacrest shared back in episode four. So many times in my career, I have been working with vulnerable populations where we go out and harvest a medicine and you just sort of witness this light come on inside of people where they begin to remember how their grandmother used that plant, what they might have called it, how they would use it, and that that memory was medicine and is medicine for people, remembering our teachings. Plants are our greatest teacher, and when you can have them growing right outside the door, it makes sense to make sure that that access is available. What if everyone in Seattle had medicine growing right outside our door, like the residents of Eco Village? What if eventually those gardens intersected and began connecting our fragmented ecosystem across yards, streets, and neighborhoods? And instead of waiting to be told how to do it, waiting for some policymaker to press reset or give permission, what if we followed the lead of Eco Village and began planting medicine right where we need it most? Perhaps this is how we'll make Seattle's forest contiguous. As we near the end of our first season together, we feel an immense amount of gratitude for the collaborators on the Growing Old Project, the voices you've been hearing throughout our season. 
We asked the growing old team to share reflections on the first season and what will stick with them moving forward. For me, growing old is a blessing. To be able to grow old enough to have experiences that you can share, to be able to have seen things happen and able to relate those to things that are happening today. It makes you think about value, like how much you really mean to the earth when you go out into the environment and you're just out there. Like, how much do you really matter? How much are the things that you're doing really matter? From the moment we met together amongst the old growth trees in Schmitz Park, I knew that we were planting a seed of possibility that allowed us to imagine a grand vision for Seattle, a vision of care, one of love and of hope. I love that saying, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of giants of giant western red cedars and Sitka spruce, on the shoulders of our ancestors, of Seattle's giants like Bernie White Bear, Roberto Maestas, Bob Santos, Larry Gossett. We are in a time of growth and learning right now, and I have hope that the big, bold visions that we've spoke about in the Growing Old Project, those are already becoming our new reality. I've learned things that I had no idea I would learn. Like the history of Seattle, the history of the First Nations, very specific things. People working directly on the ground in these areas and that firsthand account of the natural and human history of Seattle that I was not expecting. And it has been really, really amazing. feel really lucky to have learned so much already. For me personally, when I think of trees, I don't think of just one tree. I think of a forest, and I think of all the creatures in that forest. All the little squirrels and birds and deer and all the insects, little ants and bees, and all the things that depend on the trees to keep growing and be strong. A lot of how I approach my work at the club is I think of those teachings. I think of the trees and how they support all the other creatures and animals, and how can I do that? because when trees are strong, all of everything that's in our community forest is going to be strong too. Trees have a very unnamed role in our current society and the way we live our daily lives. I think there are impacts that our natural environment have on our culture and the way we come together and our creative sense, but we don't look to it to name it very often, and so it's very much just perceived rather than cultivated. Like if there were no trees, we'd be done. We'd be done. We'd be absolutely done. Yeah. We continue to absorb nature mm -hmm. as if it's a sponge, and then you wrench it out. That's but right. But we seem to be backwards in terms of then not giving, giving back. Giving anything so back. So mm -hmm. that's, that's unnatural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unnatural. Trees are just crucial. vital to our existence. Yeah. Very crucial. Yeah. I hope that this reaches multidiscipline. Like it's not just for those who already care about the environment or nature those who care about respecting the native or indigenous folks and their plight and their history. I hope it crosses disciplines, like all the disciplines start to talk about it, using music, using visual arts, using spoken word, using all those things that touch people and that people are able to find their connection through however it touched them. Collaborating with this incredible team on the Growing Old Project has been amazing. With each interview and new episode, I learn something new about myself, something new about my ancestors and about my community. I have really been meditating on the strength of women this season. 
My mother always told me that I come from a long line of resilient women, from women who organized for the right to vote, strong-backed women who worked in the fields as migrant farm workers, curanderas who passed down plant medicine knowledge from generation to generation, women who gave up the dream of going to college to raise families. I've really connected with my own trust in my ancestors. I'm going to trust in the wisdom of the women who guide me. I'm going to trust in the wisdom of the women who are guiding us all. I think especially in our current environment, it's really easy to see how we tackle the step that feels the most urgent as the local and national government. And that to me is how you end up in the situation we're in now, where we have a fractured society that doesn't actually take care of everyone who's in it or the environment that's around it. It's always really hard when there are things that are incredibly urgent to also think about the long term. But it seems like 50% of the job has to be where do we want to be in 50 years and how do we get there? So not just knowing we're going to take the next step that's in front of us, but we're actually going to turn slightly because going directly the way we're going now doesn't get us to where we want to go. So some kind of commitment and statement of a long-term vision that our city, our state, our country wants to go towards feels like that's how we get there. Incremental change is important and it's how you achieve it, but if you don't know what you want that to add up to, you don't usually end up in a very good place. I think we're a city that's okay with acknowledging that we've really messed it up. <laughs> and I think that sometimes we get kind of stuck there because we're like, oh yeah, we really like... You know, we have incredible rates of Native homelessness because we kicked Native people out years ago, right? And, and so the, people are willing to look at that and do that. That is, to me, an excellent start. I can say for myself that there are opportunities within our city systems, city planning, urban and public spaces that are just ripe for opportunity. We have to be innovative about the way that we think about these public spaces that are being developed now. We have a whole brand new waterfront that's coming up in the city. Most of it is already planned, but there's opportunities in those environments to encourage, just one idea is to encourage an indigenous garden that says, hey, here's a space where we're gonna say, well, these were some of the original plants. I think that we have to be committed to understanding new ways of design and new ways of thinking about public space planning and who's there and who's not there and why those voices have to be there. And I think that architecture that reflects all of the community and not just the white majority is going to be really important as we move forward in, in this work. And I think that we have the right kind of community to get there. It will take a lot of sacrifice. It will take a lot of courage. But we have some of the most amazing people that live in this city, and this is the city that, that can make that happen. We've done a lot in the city. We have the whole world drinking coffee. <laughs> we have people flying on airplanes, like huge, huge. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Like, it's crazy that we get on a plane and, like, we're to fly in the sky, and, and we trust that. We have Microsoft, and we have Amazon, and we have things that changed the world, changed it in incredible ways. So we should be hopeful within our city that we can do some major thing. I think it's really important for us to not let the weight of climate change, and, and honestly, we haven't even talked about this, like the grief of climate change overwhelm us. We have to be full of hope and we have to be full of plans and innovation in order to see this planet be what our ancestors dreamed it would be. Imagine that you're standing in downtown Seattle, except it's not like the downtown you see and know today. This is Seattle in the year 2070, 
a Seattle where trees and humans grow old. You walk along the waterfront and catch sight of orca swimming through Elliott Bay. You meander uphill past architecture that was designed by and reflects the indigenous, black, and immigrant communities that call Seattle home. Stepping off concrete, you're drawn into a corridor of green that stretches throughout our city, connecting a fragmented forest into one contiguous ecosystem. You munch on a few salal berries from a shrub as you pass through the bountiful landscape, stopping to share some of the water from your pack with a young western red cedar growing near the Chief Seattle Club's All All building. It's been a hot day, but you find cool respite under the shade of a white oak. Breathing in the clean air, you pause at a bench, taking in the humans and wildlife in the bustling downtown forest. The nutrition is tending to a medicine garden where once there had only been concrete, the youth group digging up rogue blackberry vines, the group of coworkers sharing a picnic spread under a western white pine where once there had been an avenue for cars. A bald eagle swoops down near the co-workers to snatch its prey from beneath the fern, and you hear them retelling the story all the way back to the light rail station. You continue on your way home, following the street signs bearing both Lachute Seed and English place names, down the wooded path to Rainier Beach, or Eagle Village, or unincorporated King County. Wherever it is, it's safe. It feels and looks like home. And whether you own it or rent, you're paying an affordable price especially considering how many Doug Furs and Pacific Madrones you have growing on your block. You've reached the restored salmon stream by now, and you follow it down what used to be an alley, picking up a piece of litter from the bank. It's rare to find litter in the Seattle of 2070, but you pick it up any chance you get. This is your city, after all. Your beautiful, emerald, anti-racist city. And wherever you are when you arrive back home, you feel linked to the ecosystem and community around you. Like the mycelium that runs beneath your feet, you grow only more connected to this place, to your neighbors, and to the trees on your block with each passing year. This is the contiguous Seattle of 2070. We'd like to hear from you. What's your vision for Seattle in the year 2070? What do you see when you imagine walking down the street in 50 years? Record your vision on your phone or whatever device you have handy and share it with us at growingoldproject.com. We'll continue gathering visions to share when we return to you in season two. While this is the end of our first season of Growing Old, this isn't the end of our project. We'll be back with more stories and songs from Seattle's Urban Canopy, and we're grateful to all the incredible collaborators and partners who joined us in the journey through the urban forest. Season one was made possible by an immense number of volunteer hours from our team and funding from partners to support stipends for our musical collaborators. We'd like to share a message now from our premier sponsor, the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, who was the first to come on in support of the project. They share that the Henry M. Jackson Foundation was founded in 1983 to continue the unfinished work of the late Senator Henry M. Scoop Jackson. We tackle critical policy issues and seek to make a lasting impact, perpetuating the Jackson values to benefit future generations. We proudly sponsored this podcast to celebrate Earth Day. Two of our core issues are environmental policy and stewardship and supporting the next generation of public leaders. This innovative project developed by Jackson Leadership Fellows Tamara Power Drudis and Liliana Ayala and their team provides an example of how we strive to foster leadership in the climate crisis and natural resource issues. 
Looking to the future, we need people in our city, state, and county to demand that our national leaders take action on climate change now, so that in 2070, we can live on a healthy planet with a diversity of plants, animals, and insects that sustain us all. We're grateful to have had you here with us, listeners. We invite you to join us in August for a virtual concert with musical guests and storytellers from season one of Growing Old and the release of our soundtrack. And keep an eye out later this summer for the release of the very first Growing Old project zine. To all of you out there listening, may your soil be rich, your restoration efforts be in good cheer, and may you live to grow old in the company of very large trees. From Seattle, Washington, This is Growing Old. This series was developed in collaboration. It was co-created by Colleen Echohawk, Liliana Ayala, and Tamara Power-Drudis. It was produced by Katie Mosehauer. Music for the series was created by Lacey Warrior, Glass Heart String Choir, and Black Stacks. Promotion and marketing was provided by Katie Myers and the Vida Agency. Support for this project is provided by the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and Arts in the Parks, a partnership between the City of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture and Seattle Parks and Recreation. This is Growing Old.